Huzzah! Welcome to a very special episode of the Somewhere Call Play podcast. <laughs> and why, Megan, is it so special? Because we successfully pooped out a baby. Heck we yeah. did high it, man. It's a big high five, a big life win. Yeah, I'm so fucking happy. Um, little Leo Michael Roach is right next to us as we're doing this recording. He's making sweet little coups. He's been surprisingly great so far. I'm pretty sure he's already doing his hill strides. How fun is this? It's been surprisingly easy and fun and awesome. Of course, long and arduous. Labor was 60 hours. We'll get into that in a later podcast, but yeah, it's been great. Yeah, it's been such a... uh affirmation of our love and you know we want to say we love you all thank you for the support we have gotten a great outpouring over the course of the last year and a half we first debated having kids on this podcast forever ago um and today we have an incredibly cool topic for you we recorded this just a couple weeks before um the baby got pooped out and it is on norwegian training it was such a fun episode we like nerded out on the science did some there's lots of jokes in there it was really fun i'm actually kind of sad though i mean i feel like we're ready and primed to record a podcast now we should almost just do it but thankfully megan we already have this norwegian episode ready and i listened to it just to prep just to make sure and it is the best training episode we've ever recorded i think that people are going to get so much from it i think it's going to go viral i think it's going to change the world i think leo is going to grow up in a different universe after this podcast episode it's going to be like what were you guys tripping on and clearly it was athletic greens because there's been a lot of that in our lives recently (laughs) okay so uh without further ado let's get to the episode but first just make sure you rate it give it five stars please follow Follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we can't wait for you to listen to our very special episode as we cuddle with this ball of joy. A ball of joy and poop and love and spit up and all the things. Just like life itself. Oh, what a beautiful description. Okay, let's get to it. We love you all. Woo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday! It's Tuesday! Oh yeah, a Tuesday that is special. It's been the... We haven't done a Sexy Science Corner in almost a year. Yeah, it's been so long. I don't know why we got away from it, because people freaking love them. Um, Our one on fatigue resistance, episode 83, was one of the biggest episodes of all. Um, And so we have so many sexy science topics in the podcast, but we wanted to dedicate the entire thing to one subject today, which is Norwegian training and Norwegian training principles. Yeah, why did we get away from this? I'm pretty sure it's because we just like injecting pop culture into everything we yeah. do. And it's kind of a little bit harder to do that with Sexy Science Corner. Also, another question for you. Why is it called Corner? I feel like it should be called a cave at this point. <laughs> I would like a cave, like a sexy cave, a grotto, perhaps. Ooh. Like at the Playboy Mansion. A sexy Science Grotto. No, yeah. I mean, I feel like the cave has just been kind of ubiquitous in our terminology. We got Courtney DeWalter talking about the pain cave. We got your man cave that is sitting across the room over there (laughs) that is like emanating in many, many different directions. Yeah. So now we have the sexy science cave to back it up. Um, I like it. And we have the perfect topic today. So on Norwegian training, we're going to get into a lot of details. But the big thing to remember here is essentially this is just the new conception of what smart endurance training is. We call it Norwegian, but it could just as easily be talking about Renata Canova coaching Kenyans or classic approaches used by Japanese runners. Um, The principles that we're going to get into basically apply across the board, looking at heavily heavy focuses on threshold running um a lot of easy running some faster work but not a ton um to be contrasted on the other side with people just going out and hammering intervals and doing this big polarized structure i'm really glad we're diving into this in a sexy science cave yeah because i think you know we've we've laid the groundwork for a lot of these principles on on recent episodes we've talked about zone one training we've talked about these like really smooth focused intervals yeah and norwegian training kind of encompasses that together in one specific package and i think when we use 
use the term Norwegian training, it's, I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily validated out there in the exercise physiology literature. It's just that we're seeing a lot of these principles come together in a way in which like a lot of Norwegians are using and they happen to be sharing about um, quite often in the the media. Yeah. And maybe that's the coolest thing of all here is that why it's called Norwegian is almost a marketing thing, in my opinion, Um, because the athletes that are at the forefront of this, the Ingbertsen brothers, um, you know, brother Jacob has won the Olympic gold in the 1500. Christian Blumenfeld, who won the Olympic gold in triathlon. Gustav Aydin, who just won uh, Kona Ironman. They all talk about their training publicly. They all post about it. In some cases, especially for the Ingbertsons, there are scientific articles about it um, in ways that we haven't always had in Canova's training camps in Africa, for example. So these athletes are not just testing themselves all the time and seeing where their lactate levels are and dialing things in to this really cool level on the scientific end. Um, They're also posting about it. And perhaps that's the biggest secret of all. If you post about it, they will come. In this case, they is us. They're also delightful too. Yeah. It so happens that they're doing like pretty monstrous training and being delightful at the same time. And that's a fun combo. I yeah. like that combo. Um, question for you. If uh-huh. it was, we've had this recurring theme on our podcast that we freaking love Canadians, uh-huh. like love, love Canadians. Yeah. And I think Norwegians are making a push at that. If you had to choose. Oh. Yeah. I can never, ever, ever cheat on Canadians. Canadians are so freaking cool. Um, I love everything about them. I love that they put ketchup on their chips. That's really like the number one thing for me. But then also they're just so funny and kind. I've never met a Norwegian comedian, but basically every comedian is Canadian. So I'm going to stick with Canadians, but I will say Canadians, you got Norwegians coming for you. So make sure you share our podcast with all your friends because they're coming in hot. Okay. So here's the thing though, is I read a stat about Norwegians that made them rival Canadians. What? I know. And you know, they, they really took ketchup to they took ketchup and took a full scale salt on ketchup. So there's 5.3 million inhabitants in Norway, and they consume 47 million frozen pizzas. A year. <laughs> they are considered the frozen pizza capital of the world. In I don't know. In my book, I think that beats out ketchup and ketchup chips. That is wild. It's really interesting. So that is a statistically greater number than other countries? Like massive, of massive significance. A p-value, I mean, I'm estimating a p-value, 0.0001. So you're saying it's a a pizza value, not just a p-value. Yes, it's a pepperoni pizza value. (laughs) Oh my God, a (laughs) (laughs) p-p-value. Yeah, that's actually fascinating. I wonder if there is something there. Perhaps that's why they can do such great training. I was going to say, pizza and zone one training, put it together and we have an even better Norwegian philosophy. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps most relevant of all for trailrunners is that Killian Jornet lives there now. Um, he doesn't necessarily do a strict Norwegian approach, but he has applied all of these principles to his own training. So we're counting Killian as an honorary Norwegian for the purposes of this podcast. So um, essentially what you're seeing is all of these athletes come in on the international stage with this small country. Megan said 5.3 million people. And they are dominating in ways that hasn't been seen before. Obviously, there's a lot of things that you could attribute that to. The skeptics might say, hey, you better get their blood tests and and check out if they're taking any drugs before you say that. You better check for pepperoni pizza in their blood. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? That's We'll address that a little bit in the discussion today, but we want to leave that aside to start because um, we want to believe in this and believe in the process of, you know, self-improvement via training philosophy. And we don't want to get bogged down in skepticism to the point that everything becomes so heavily full of doping disclaimers that it just takes away any meaning in what anyone ever does. It's like, no, I believe these athletes until proven otherwise. That's a great point. I try not to get bogged down in skepticism, but I would say I have a fairly healthy dose of skepticism. But what I like about Norwegian training, though, is I think actually a lot of the principles 
apply to athletes across the ranges. Um, And so we'll get into that because I think, you know, we're going to be talking about elite athletes that have responded to this level of training. But I think certainly there's principles that apply to a beginner athlete getting into this. You know, someone who is just starting running for the very first time or someone that has a massive aerobic engine and is looking to make that next leap in sport. And so I think there's applications across the board. And so we'll provide these examples, these sexy examples of elite athletes doing this, but then also break it down for, for different types of athletes as well. I love that. Yeah. And I think maybe the coolest thing of Norwegian training is it's hard, but it shouldn't hurt. And so there's actually a barrier to entry here that's a lot lower, I think, than some other like older training philosophies. Because as we're going to talk about, the intensity is moderately controlled throughout this process. So you shouldn't necessarily be in pain when you're doing it. It should be kind of fun. Okay, I'm looking at you with a baffled face right yeah. now. I don't know what your definition of hurt is. I mean, <laughs> I feel like I embrace the pain cave pretty well. Yeah. But looking at some of the Ingbertsons brothers' workouts, they do look like they hurt a little bit. Yeah. We're going to talk about a workout where they get up to eight millimoles of lactate pretty consistently throughout the workout. And that seems like it hurts. It might hurt a little, but to contrast that, a lot of those older 90s, early 2000s American teams that were doing hard 400s on the track, they're probably getting up to 20 millimoles. Okay, well, there, I think there's a, a range of hurt. I would say they're like pressing on the hurt button delicately. Yeah, yeah. They're not slamming it down like those earlier Americans. I like that. They're not going to the hurt locker. They're just going to like... They're going to the hurt cave. The hurt, okay. the hurt grotto. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so a uh, background for those that hadn't heard our past science corners. The way we do this is we have a ton of science that we bring in on different topics, and we structure it all around a Trail Runner Magazine article that we have written in the past um, that really digs into this in detail. So what we're going to do is we're going to read from the article and throughout we're going to jump in and start just riffing on the topic. Um, we have a lot of new studies that we want to bring in and new science. Um, and throughout, I think it'll give you a great broad understanding. And I think my goal is after you finish this podcast, um, you'll just be like, okay, I get that. I have such a better understanding of the broad range of training approaches used, and I want to eat some frozen pepperoni pizza. Yes. Also, I appreciate that you said that we wrote this article. We do write and collaborate on a lot of articles, but you actually wrote this article, and I want to make sure I give you full props because it's a great piece of writing. There are some funny points in here, so (laughs) I'm excited to read it. We're going to read it, and then we'll, you know, we'll stop and, you know, digress paragraph by paragraph and kind of bring in some other fun, sexy science along the way. Yeah. I like that you're like, um, David, this wasn't us. It's basically your way of saying, I do not sign by that joke that you made. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, one of the most magical things about the podcast is we become the you know, ultimate collaborators in everything we do. So um, I'm going to give you credit for this article as long as I can take credit for all the amazing shit you do. Well, I do get to edit them and sometimes you you don't take my edits. So we'll see, we'll see which edits got left in here. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I'll start um, the first paragraph in the title. So an overview of the Norwegian approach to running training. Subtitle, some athletes from Norway are using variations of intensity controlled threshold training, double workouts, and focus specific work to great success on the international stage. The approach has important takeaways for all athletes. Let's take a deep dive into some fun training theory. Okay, article starts. Olympian doctor and coach Marius Backen published a fantastic article on the quote Norwegian model of training. It's a long read, but extremely worth it delving into the nooks and crannies of training principles used by some of the best athletes in the world. Today, we want to break down some elements of the Norwegian approach for a general audience because we think the key principles are relevant to all endurance athletes. Okay, so breaking this down, to start, 
Marius Backen is an Olympian doctor and coach. Yeah. What a boss. I love that you just kind of threw that in there casually and didn't comment on that. Yeah, he's coming at your swag because like, I feel like you're um, the most uh, qualified person that's ever lived in this world. I don't know about that. Dr. Backen's coming in hot over here. So actually, his article is really in a great place to start because he um, wrote this great primer on Norwegian training. And that's what led to me being like, okay, now I have the courage because it confirms a lot of what we have been hearing throughout the years. Um, and it kind of was the fire that lit the process under the last year of everyone focusing on Norwegian training was his primer to this. And I think what's helpful about focusing on Norwegian training and focusing on Norwegian training with elite athletes is that elite athletes are operating at the margins of, of human error. Definitely. Like every 0.5% difference for these athletes matters. It can be yeah. the difference between like sitting on the couch and going to the Olympics. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's something that I think when you think about it distilled down to that way, it helps inform training theory for how we think about everyone else. Because Definitely. certainly, you know, if an athlete like that is grasping at the 0.5% margin, that could be a 20% margin for an athlete just starting out. Or perhaps it's perhaps it's not, and we'll break down kind of those yeah. different nuances. But I think it's a helpful way to break down why this is important. Yeah, definitely. When 0.5% is the difference between being an accountant and an Olympian, uh, then people start to seek out ways to optimize human performance. Obviously, that brings up the doping discussion we had. But I think for the purposes of our conversation, we're essentially saying, okay, these athletes are clearly getting every little ounce of potential out of themselves. How do they do it from this country that shouldn't be doing this statistically? There must be something going on. And that's what the article dives into. Okay. An accountant and Olympian describes Gwen Jorgensen. Oh. She did both. Oh, cool. She was an accountant and a gold medal Olympian. So there we go. Did she quit accounting though at some point? She did quit accounting okay. and she gained all those 0.5% marginal gains to yeah. become a gold medal Olympian. So maybe Norwegian training lets you quit your accounting job. Exactly. Also, she just had a baby. Shout out to the postpartum life. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to the article. First, the obvious question. Norway, the country with the same population as South Carolina, what and also why? <laughs> a revelation over the last few years has been the ascendance of Norwegian endurance superstars on the track and in triathlon. In particular, the Ingbrandsen brothers are lighting up the track, highlighted by Jacob's 1,500-meter gold medal at the Olympics. In triathlon, Christian Blumenfeld won the gold medal. That's layered on Norway's historical dominance of winter Olympic sports like cross-country skiing. What unites the athletes across the sports? I think there's a strong argument that it's how physiologists have been instrumental in helping guide training theory. That's especially evident in cross-country skiing. For example, a 2021 study in the Frontiers in Sports and Active Living Journal examined the training characteristics of 12 world-class male long-distance skiers training for events that were several hours long finding that nearly 90% of that training was lower intensity, which is zone one, and it's three zone model, with higher intensity training following strict protocols that limited fatigue accumulation. One of the most interesting variables for cross-country skiing training is that blood lactate levels are monitored throughout training to dial in precise intensity levels. Okay, and that might be the most interesting place to start this discussion, is what might set Norwegian people apart is not necessarily the fact that they're doing this intensity-controlled training, but that they're finger-sticking all the fucking time to monitor their blood lactate levels. We're going to get into a primer a little bit later on on what exactly lactate is, but even if you never access this, it points out how the aerobic system develops over time, that the aerobic system is built from the bottom up. And that's not just easy running, that's also moderate running. And every time you're doing really hard efforts, you start to tamp down on that aerobic development. You stop to start, uh, you slow down some of the aerobic enzyme processes. And as you do that, 
you start to see less long-term growth. So this is essentially investing in long-term by being a little bit more disciplined in the moment. And the Norwegians are doing that in a very calculated way. I appreciate that you brought up the idea that they're finger sticking. Yeah. And I'm hoping, so there are some new scientific studies looking at continuous blood lactate monitoring systems. Oh, yeah. They're going to be so helpful for, you know, kind of transforming how we think about lactate monitoring because finger sticking is quite frankly a pain in the ass, <laughs> especially in Norway when it's freezing because yeah. I imagine it's like, it's so hard to get the blood to, to actually like, you know, come up and to actually measure. But I think, you know, we actually don't do a lot of finger sticking in our coaching because yeah. it's annoying. It's, you know, you kind of constantly have to monitor it. But I think there are some proxies for thinking about lactate that we're going to get into ahead that help you kind of approximate where you are in that in that lactate curve. Yeah, if these blood tests are a pain in the ass, you might be taking blood from the wrong place. It might just <laughs> not be the exact place you're supposed to. Um, so let's get, let's just take a step back a little bit and talk about something that's not in the article, um, which is aerobic development more generally. There's a 2021 review in sports medicine that was called Crossing the Golden Training Divide. Okay, that is, that's like girthy. I like that. Isn't it good? Um, And the basic principle of this is that at 800 meters, um, lots of different approaches work. You'll sometimes see an 800 meter runner that does 15 miles per week or 10 miles per week, just such low volumes. But above 1,800 meters, so we're talking events that are just three and a half minutes long in the 1,500 at the level. Every single one is doing a heavy emphasis on aerobic training. And it points out that in very short events, it is still 90 plus percent aerobic. In 5K, it gets to 98, 99%. Above that, it's essentially 100% aerobic. And everything that's anaerobic has its purpose for developing strength and power, but is not necessary for the aerobic development end of the curve. And when I think you look at the stratification between the two groups, so the groups that are, you know, doing 800 meter training versus 1500 meter training, and this is what the athlete, this is what the study dove into, yeah. is what exactly is that stratification? It's actually quite high. When you dive into it. So athletes um, training for the 800 meters on average are doing 50 to 120 kilometer weeks. And as you mentioned, some yeah. of those athletes may be even down as low as 12 miles per week, which is super low um, compared to athletes who are doing the 1500 meters are spending, you know, more time like 120 to 170 kilometers per week. That's yeah. a big difference in kilometers per week. And we see that reflected in terms of the aerobic to anaerobic training proportion ratios. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, the 1500 meters just has this outsized aerobic component to it. So these athletes are spending 90% of their time training and like, you know, focusing on that aerobic system. Whereas athletes training for the 800, it's often 60, 40 is what this this study found in terms of aerobic to anaerobic training. And it's kind of fun to think about that inflection point. And I, I think about it in the context that basically most everything that we are training athletes for yeah. is very aerobic. Even like things like obstacle course racing, Spartan racing, yeah. those events, they're you know often anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour, very aerobic. Yeah. So Megan, I'm going to give you props and say, for those that don't know, Megan coached two world championships in obstacle course racing this year, including in the 3K distance. And you've come in and essentially dominated this sport as a coach. I want to give you big props for that. And as I understand it, as we talked about this on the recent episode, it's just aerobic training. Um, You've introduced aerobic training to a sport that used to be largely focused on anaerobic development. And so you've given a talented aerobic athlete a lot of aerobic training, and they actually get better at everything, including the strength sports, uh, which is a really cool area to think about. So um, it points out Jacob Ingerbritton, who's going to be one of the main people we talk about today, got the gold medal in the 1500. He has a 320-something PR in this event, and he's done that from the bottom up. Um, So... 
if we're doing, you know, in some cases, people listening to this will be doing ultra marathons. Yeah, bottom up is where you want to go. There's complications in that, though. And that's really the magic of Norwegian training. And it's bottom up for years and years and years. And I yeah. think what I, what's unique about Norwegians, and we even see this in some of like the winter sports Olympic models, is they're very patient in their Definitely. development um, in the young years. So in high school years and college years. And my bet actually is if you looked at Norwegian high school and college athletes, they're not doing what we classically do in the NCAA system here where athletes are going out and just hammering their aerobic yeah. runs i bet they're having this really controlled base building that's stacking year after year after year and that's kind of accruing and allowing those aerobic gains to really solidify definitely and maybe the coolest thing of all they let physiologists into their training sessions it's just totally different than other places in the world um, and 2017 case study in cross-country skiing looked at the best female skier ever um, and it found that she did 92 percent low intensity training um, that is so low, but it really emphasizes, okay, that is a full investment in your long-term growth. Obviously, she's doing insane volumes, so it's a lot different than a normal person, but it points out, okay, if you take a step back and truly invest in that long-term growth, great things are possible, and maybe it's the Norwegian cultural differences <laughs> at the young levels that make some of that possible. It's patience and pizza. Patience and pizza. I'm pretty sure that's what makes it possible. Can you define for the listeners low intensity training in this study? So I assume that's probably zone one on a three zone model or yeah. zone one and zone two on a, a five zone model. Exactly. We're going to get into that in a little bit more detail ahead. But essentially, a lot of these studies break things down into a three zone model, which is complicated because always you hear about the five zone model. Um, so maybe we talk about it a little bit now and then we'll skip it later. What how it works is essentially the first zone in a three zone model is zone one and zone two in a normal model. This is everything that is not producing substantial amounts of lactate below the first ventilatory threshold. You can think about anything where you're able to talk in complete sentences. Um, your classic easy to easy moderate or steady uh, running and behavior. Zone two is moderate. This is classic threshold all the way capped on the top end by your lactate threshold or critical velocity. Um, that is a you know really key zone that this focuses on very, very, very heavily. And then zone three is everything above either critical velocity at the top end or threshold. So VO2 max style work. And it's a very small uh, contribution. Um, and that moderate zone would be zone three and zone four in a five zone model. And zone five and zone three are kind of synonyms. Okay, fist bump. That yeah. was an outstanding breakdown off the cuff. I'm very proud of you on that. Um, I think it's also really helpful for me to think about what's happening kind of like on the cellular level as your body goes Definitely. through and transitions into these zones. So zone one to me is we use the term on here angiogenesis yeah. all the time that's where you're develop really developing your capillaries um and I, that's heavy focus on zone one and also to mitochondria um, mitochondria efficiency mitochondria development very helpful in zone one as well Zone two, I think, is where you start to process fatigue via those mechanisms. Definitely. So processing fatigue via those capillaries and mitochondria, you're starting to work through those systems a little bit more. And then zone three in the three zone model is really just thinking about like biomechanical and neuromuscular output under yeah. a heavy fatigue load. And I think to me, that's the helpful way that I break it down because I like understanding what's happening on the cellular level and you know the, the, the musculoskeletal level as well um, as the body goes through these zones. Absolutely love your solution there. So in this three zone model, essentially what we're talking about is, okay, we like, we use the five zone model for our actual athletes, but the three zone model is how they use it in exercise physiology research, because it's easy to measure based on lactate levels. Um, zone one for these Norwegians to give you some bearings on these millimoles we're going to be talking about of lactate. Zone one is essentially below two millimoles lactate. Zone two is two to four millimoles lactate. So this narrow band to constitute threshold. Zone three is everything above it. And athletes will sometimes get to 25 millimoles lactate in like an 800 meter. So you can get 
really high and it's a really broad range of high intensity work. Um, and the base of how you described it, maybe the best description of training theory ever. Zone one is to give your body the tools to process all of this fatigue that you will accumulate later. So every day you're going out there easy, it is laying the groundwork for how you're going to actually be able to go out there and go hard later. Zone two, the uh, moderate work, improves lactate shuttling. So how quickly your body can actually clear the fatigue you're doing, you're creating. And then zone three is to make sure you have the power to actually generate um, the, the speeds you need. And so you feed all those back in together in different proportions. That's Norwegian training. Okay, one last way to think about it. So you yeah. can think about it in terms of, you know, angiogenesis and mitochondria and, you know, some of these other factors or millimoles of lactate. Or you can think about it in terms of a traffic traffic light, ah. red, yellow, green. Yeah. Uh, zone one, easy. Zone two, moderate. Zone three, hard. So there's all yes, different yes, ways yes. to break it down and we'll conclude with the most basic. Yeah, I like keeping it simple most of all. Okay, back to the article. A 2019 study in the International Journal of Sports Science and Coaching shows the same vigilance about lactate levels for the Ingebrigtsens. In a recent podcast with Scientific Triathlon, Coach Arlid Tevelton uh, relays information about similar intensity controls for Christian Blumenfeld, Olympic gold medalist. While the Norwegian principles are exciting, they are not new in Norway or around the world. Dr. Bakken describes writing about them in the late 1990s. Coach Renato Canova has relied heavily on controlled intervals and a focus on lactate threshold for decades. And back in 2000, Dr. Bakken provided an overview of Kenyan training principles that looked awfully similar. Uh, the Norwegians may not be reinventing the wheel, and they wouldn't argue that they are. But I think they deserve massive credit for refining the design of the wheel to a science that has implications for all athletes. I love this point. Also, you just name dropped a whole bunch of physiologists and yeah. top coaches in here. And so it's fun to see them coming together. But I think for me, the Norwegian training is also about the fact that they're so open in sharing Definitely. what they're doing. And it's rare. I mean, I think in the US, sometimes we hold so tightly to the systems that we're doing. Yeah. It's rare to see Salazar come out and state the training that he's doing besides his the statements that have appeared about his testosterone <laughs> use and other. Or, you know, thinking about like Bowerman Track Club or some of these yeah. other places, we just don't see like training philosophy and exercise physiology statements come out. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think the Norwegians just make this accessible and yeah. it's awesome. So I love Strava because like Gustav Eiden and Blumenfeld are both on Strava. It's the ultimate mindfuck for their competitors because they're, <laughs> these guys did get this, a 25 mile brick run. So a run after the bike at six minute pace, six days before they won or finished first and third at Ironman Hawaii. Can you imagine being their competitors and seeing that and being like, holy crap, what do I do now? I'm competing with superhumans. But the point being, people have done stuff like that forever. They just haven't put it on Strava. They just haven't had physiologists being, uh, you know, following them and taking their blood all the time and then posting about it. So it actually gives me hope that there isn't dope because why would they be letting the physiologists in the room and publish all this data if they were taking EPO? It would make no sense. I feel like the lack of transparency in some groups makes me so much more skeptical than this like, hey, Here's our uh, pizza and workouts. <laughs> they would be hiding their power data on Strava for sure. But yeah. I think, you know, Kenyans have historically done this sort of training philosophy for a long time. Yeah. I think yeah. they just do so in a way that's one, not as documented. And two, they're not, I think, I mean, it really depends on the training group. But my understanding is they're not diving into the lactate quite as much. They're yeah. doing it a lot more by feel and by perceived exertion. Yeah. And the interesting thing is I've read that sometimes when these physiologists go to the Kenyan training camps, they're not allowed to publish, but they'll take lactate and they're nailing it just by feel. And it points out why feel is a great way to do this altogether. I mean, you look at Kipchoge's training, his stated training, though, because we're never exactly sure. He's doing a ton of one kilometer reps, just a bit faster than marathon pace. He's probably, let's say in the millimoles framework that we're using at 2.5 millimoles when he's doing that. 
exactly where the Ingebrigtsons would be. And um, so even though he's not looking at it, he's doing it. Uh, And then you look at Killian, and he's doing very similar things. He takes his blood lactate periodically to spot check, but he's not doing it every session. Um, So he's kind of a hybrid approach um, of the two. So how would you recommend, I'm sure athletes out there are thinking about getting their lactate tested after listening to this podcast. How would you recommend structuring that and using it in training? So my, uh, actually, I'll I'll let you start. I was going to ask a question and then answer it, which is something (laughs) you often do and I've picked up. Yeah, you were going to woman-splain to me? <laughs> exactly. Blood lactate? Um, I would just get a lab test from a good physiologist in the context of either tempo work or intervals to get a feel for where you're at because I think often athletes just are fully wrong on it. Um, I think some of the at-home lactate tests they're just not reliable enough yet. Um, and when athletes use them and put them into practice, you get wild data. So try to do it in a lab if you're going to do it. But again, I've never done it. Um, you know, we don't do it for the athletes we coach, even though we have great feel for it. I, I'm much more partial to the Kipchoge Kenyan approach of, you know, very loosely following the feel rather than using it in practice. So how about you? I, I agree a hundred percent. If I have a really data motivated athlete who yeah. has the extra means to spend on, you know, lab-based testing, I think it is helpful to do a spot check now and then. And then it also gives you an idea how an athlete's adapting and responding Definitely. and, you know, making sure to prevent against any sort of like overtraining metrics or anything like that. So I think it can be a great way. I'd say like every three months is a helpful way yeah. to kind of think about testing and retesting and following it over time. Um, so it really depends on the athlete, but I'm a big feel yeah. right, feel based person. It's just like heart rate. In that the complications become, there can be a lot of noise that is hard to discern from the signal in that a lot of things are pushing on lactate on a given day. Exactly, yes. So it's one day is not going to be the same as another day, which is why using it every day is the best of all if you're going to use it at all. Um, and so I essentially just would like the test to get an idea that we're not totally wrong, but usually you can tell that pretty quickly based on what an athlete describes. Okay, let's get back to the article. Some disclaimers before we kick this off. It's uncertain how well these principles apply to athletes that aren't at the far right at the bell curve for genetic talent, particularly in running, which has a higher biomechanical and neuromuscular input than a sport like cycling. I'll get into some of these complications in more detail later. There could be different, differing pr- responses based on some genetic differences, particularly muscle fiber typology, which will impact aerobic and metabolic processes. Aging athletes or those that are VO2 max or training volume limited may need a heavier emphasis on intensity or speed. Sex differences could be relevant too, particularly in how well a blocked workout design functions given how it impacts sex hormones, cortisol, and energy availability. Yeah, and this is really a difficult thing to talk about in complication because you'll probably notice all of the athletes whose names we've said so far have been men. Uh, that is a problem that may be at the heart of like complications for how individuals respond to this training. Um, because what we're going to talk, one of the things we're going to talk about are block workouts later, which are two workouts in a single day. Uh, very complicated, very interesting. Um, but you don't really see that for elite women in nearly the same way you do for men. Why is that? The answer is probably something to do with the endocrine system. Whenever you see a male-female difference. Testosterone is a great benefit to male athletes. It's a hell of a drug. It's a hell of a drug. It makes it way easier to adapt, way easier to respond, whereas women are really susceptible to cortisol pulses that come with hard efforts because it starts to affect their sex hormones that are fundamental to their sex function in a way that is just not for men. And I think for me, it involves taking parts of the theory and applying it to individual athletes based off of their own unique characteristics. So for women, I think the the focus on developing that aerobic base, very important. That still applies. I think the focus on smooth, controlled intervals, and in fact, actually, this makes me think a lot about our According to Walter interview, where she was doing, you know, she's doing a lot of aerobic volume, a lot of smooth workouts that are, you know, focus controlled, um, intensity controlled workouts. And, um, you know, she's stacking those together well, but she's not quite doing the consistent double workouts 
else Definitely. that Killian is doing or the Ingemarsson brothers are doing. And so I think there's adaptations that you can make, but I think it's always erring on the side of caution, Definitely. like saving room for cream and training, working in these approaches, but also making sure that like hormonal system comes first. I like it. You say saving room for cream a lot. I do. It's sexy. I think it's really, really sexy. Oh gosh, I'm just really into cream these days. So much cream. So much. I mean, it's actually whipped cream. Yeah. Um, but you know, the example with Courtney or sex differences in general are really fascinating because I think what we're essentially saying is everyone has differently sized stress buckets. Um, these athletes that we're talking about today have huge stress buckets. That's why Norwegian training at the max can work so well. An athlete like Courtney, even though she's one of the best in the world, because of sex differences, probably has a slightly smaller stress bucket. So the way she accommodates that when thinking about her training is there's a little bit less intensity, even though she's doing high volume. She couldn't do both the volume and the intensity of this type of plan, most likely. Um, But it's not just sex differences. It could be your job. It could be having a new kid, like we are going to when this podcast comes out, Um, or anything else that makes your stress bucket a little smaller. And when that happens, make sure you're not keeping all dials turned up to 10. Turn down some of the dials. And I think one of the big lessons from this is turn down the intensity dial first, because that aerobic base can be developed long-term. The intensity stuff is less important and also much much riskier. I love that point. I think the one other point to make too is, is that for beginner athletes or athletes yeah. that are building back after a long break, like I think about me postpartum, sometimes you do have to work into those like higher intensity, no, easy running yeah. days to even just establish a foundation for yourself. And so I think, you know, it does take, it takes a little bit of a base as you work into this. Like for me, I'll probably be hitting on a five zone, on a five zone model, more zone two and zone three as I build back postpartum yeah. because my body has just totally de-adapted. And then over time, I'll start to work in more of these Norwegian principles over time. And so again, just very athlete specific. Definitely. Okay, back to the article. Finally, whenever talking about endurance sports, it's important to acknowledge the elephant in the room, substances that can alter the way physiology responds to intense training. Parentheses. I'm intentionally not saying performance enhancing drugs, given the numerous revelations over the years that sometimes athletes take gray area substances for supposed performance benefits. I don't think that's a factor for today's topic, but I don't have any specific knowledge. Whatever causes someone to be an outlier, it's important to keep in mind that you should be 99% curiously excited while retaining a right to be 1% cautiously skeptical (laughs) in order to avoid making erroneous conclusions. That final disclaimer was brought to you by someone who first learned about cycling training theory from a book on Lance Armstrong. It was like learning about sex by reading a book that described the programming language for a vibrator. Okay, that last sentence might be your single best sentence I've ever heard you write. <laughs> yeah, it is weird to think about. So, you know, Lance came out and wrote all this training stuff that in retrospect was totally wrong. I read a book by Chris Carmichael, who is still a primary figure in some coaching stuff. That was clearly, in retrospect, just a cover for doping. And it is wild to think that we haven't fully excommunicated these people. But at the same time, it points out some complications with all of this. Is dope involved? Is other thing or other things involved? Like, um, it's tough to know. And it's especially relevant because as we're recording this, there have been so many things recently of athletes getting busted for doping, including the 2021 Boston Marathon winner um, and the Sierra Zanal winner in 2022. So yeah, should we take their training approaches? Probably not. It's tough to know. And it's so sad when you think about, you know, the, the people that are impacted by this across yeah. the board. And it's a, it's a really hard time, I think, to be in sport because like, how do you have these celebrations of, you know, training and racing and even training theory yeah. when you know that it's tinged with this like healthy dose of skepticism? And yeah. I think it's something that we constantly talk about is how do we communicate that, that this is frustrating, this is challenging, but there's also still principles to be learned yeah. too. So it's a, it's a unique place to be. Well, one of the things I love about Norwegian training in particular 
is that it does, everything errs on the side of easier for the most part. So to me, it indicates, okay, this is applying the most wild training principles to people that might be a little bit less, um, like able to adapt monstrously. Like in the old days, some of the like Hishama gurus, you know, notoriously suspected of doping, though not, um, fully confirmed, I don't think he ever tested positive officially, did such hard track sessions all the time, like for a week sometimes. It's like, okay, in retrospect, that makes a little more sense. These athletes are doing much uh, easier on their body efforts. So maybe it's a good sign on that. Um, But even short of doping, everyone has different health contexts and hormonal contexts. I mean, we'll sometimes see blood tests where an athlete will have a testosterone level that is like off the fucking charts. And yes, that's a natural benefit that they have, but it doesn't act that fundamentally dissimilar from someone that might be taking a substance. So, you know, natural talent, genetic outliers becomes a thing to just keep in mind as we talk about each topic. Thank you for bringing up the point of genetics because genetics do play an outsized role in a lot of these biomarkers. So hemoglobin, hematocrit, testosterone, there's yeah. new new research and new studies coming out all the time about just how much genetics impact those baseline levels. Yeah. And so, you know, even if these athletes aren't doping, we're seeing this wide spectrum of genetic underlying genetic predispositions to hormones and to biomarkers Definitely. that also impact training too. And so it's just hard to dive into that. Okay, let's get back to the article. Definitely. I love us. I'm going to break this article down into three key principles from Backen's article and other sources. The specifics are immensely complicated. So go read that article for more. And I apologize if I misstep. I like that. Just apologizing in my own articles nowadays. You apologize all the time in your own articles. And I always edit it out. Actually, I leave like one or two of them in there. Once you surpass two, I'm like, stop undercutting yourself, man. But we still apologize if we get anything wrong, even on this podcast. Oh, always. Yes. After this article. Always apologizing. Okay. Three key principles. Principle one. Athletes control intensity using lactate monitoring with a higher concentration of easier threshold training than some other approaches, layered on top of high aerobic volume. Before getting into how lactate monitoring is used, a quick primer. A seminal 2006 study in the Scandinavian Journal of, Med- of, Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports was instrumental in classifying the intensity ranges used in subsequent studies. A general summary of the three zones. Zone 1, under the first ventilatory threshold or 2 millimoles of lactate. Zone 2, between the first and second ventilatory thresholds, generally between 2 and 4 millimoles of lactate. And zone 3, above the second ventilatory threshold. The key element here involves the lactate concentrations. To simplify it a ton, lactate is produced as our bodies use glucose to fuel ATP production during glycolysis. Lactate is a fuel cell for source is a fuel source for cells and is accompanied by a hydrogen ion that changes muscle pH and contributes to fatigue. A 2018 review in cell metabolism described the lactate shuttle where the cells use lactate for energy. If the shuttle mechanism is overstressed, lactate levels and fatigues and fatigue rise and exercise becomes less sustainable. Okay, so that's the coolest thing of all here is the lactate shuttle. It is so complicated, but essentially the the big overarching 30-foot zoom out approach here is that the body produces these hydrogen ions um, for in, in the context of ATP production during glycolysis. Glycolysis. This is all what leads you to be able to run faster, to be able to put out energy at all at these higher intensity levels. Um, as you do that, it corresponds with lactate production. Um, lactate is not what causes fatigue, but it is something that is important to understand. Exactly. Blame it on the hydrogen ions. So yeah. lactate takes all of the unfair blame in this relationship. I'm confused. Like lactate needs to step up in the relationship yeah. and be like, yo, it is not my fault. <laughs> it's just easy to measure. They so we love to look at it. Needs to go to couples therapy with hydrogen ions because <laughs> we are seeing like the wrong situation play out in the media. Yeah, it is a little bit of an abusive relationship. It really right. is. Um, but the idea being that as you are able to clear lactate from 
from the cells more rapidly, the body can push harder and harder without accumulating the fatigue because it co-occurs. So the idea, if you do this right, your body produces less lactate at higher levels of performance because your aerobic system is stronger. But then also it gets rid of it more rapidly too. So um, the focus on the base makes it so that your body is essentially a lactate shuttling machine. And that's what Norwegian training focuses on. And it's really important at all different levels. Um, okay, back to the article. The Norwegian model, as outlined by Backen, involves consistent lactate monitoring. Dr. Backen found that levels around 3.0 millimoles or lower were ideal to optimize um, his response, and some Kenyan runners were as low as 2 millimoles during threshold intervals. By avoiding overstressing the body, athletes can do a higher quantity of intervals and work on that lactate shuttling mechanism more efficiently. That's key for performance at all distances, because this is the foundation of how the body produces energy at more intense but still largely aerobic outputs, which, if you remember, is all outputs that we care about, from a few (laughs) minutes on up. Plus, there are added benefits for injury prevention, the nervous system, and the endocrine system. These intensity-controlled intervals are layered with big weekly training volumes, often over 100 miles per week, with variance based on the athlete. Okay, and here is what to take away for every single athlete. Takeaways. Faster is not always better on intervals. An athlete that diligently follows the Norwegian model could almost always do their intervals faster. That is such a mindfuck to think about. But by going faster, they'd be neglecting or reversing some of the potential aerobic benefits, particularly those involving lactate shuttling and aerobic development. That's supported by an amazing 2019 study in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research that looked at 85 elite athletes over the first seven years of serious training, which found that easy running volume, short intervals, and tempos had the highest correlation with long-term growth. Meanwhile, longer intense intervals, here we're talking about longer than a kilometer, had the lowest correlation. In an article summarizing those findings, I said, during long intervals, athletes may be tempted to make make each individual effort like a little race, which may lead to fewer beneficial long-term adaptations. Trying to use the Norwegian model, but going too hard, would likely end in disaster. Okay, this is such an important point to the overall like Norwegian training system philosophy. Yeah. And I think for me, we've been talking a lot, and you did a great job in this article of breaking it down in terms of what's happening to the body on, on the level of metabolism, on the level yeah. of capillary formation. But I think it's also, and I think this is a... this this idea of, you know, building consistency over years and keeping easy, easy and controlled intervals controlled also gets into the idea of muscle fiber typology. Um, I don't know. Is it okay to dive into this here? Let's do it. It's a, it's a big step, but yeah, let's do it. So I think for me, so the, the key of stacking these gains over time is that as an athlete, what you're really looking at, um, is over years is getting your fast twitch muscle fibers to act more like intermediate muscle fibers and your intermediate muscle fibers to be more primed for endurance and your slow twitch muscle fibers to have more mitochondrian capillaries. So you're really thinking about, you know, one, so converting fast, which it's either converting or uh, there's... It's debated. So the this gets back, I see you stumbling there because you're like, do we get into this fully? And I think it's important to a certain extent, because as we talk about muscle fiber typology, there will be physiologists out there that say, hey, muscle fibers don't switch. And the answer I have is, okay, you're just looking on the long time horizons because there's some studies that look at twins that were separated at birth. What a cool study. Um, And they were 55 years old. One of them um, did endurance training. One of them was sedentary. The one that did endurance training had 55% higher expression of slow twitch muscle fibers in muscle biopsies. Clearly there's evidence that something is happening, whether that's uh, just changes in expression or actual shifting is tough to know, but it happens over such long time horizons that you can't really measure it 
in convenient ways in studies, which makes it extra complicated um, in talking about how this interacts with muscle fiber typology at all. The good news, though, is even though that sounds complicated, is it's really just semantics. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it really, if you're thinking about training, it's really only relevant to, you know, the exercise physiologist who's describing this in the lab, whether the fact that they're, whether it's the fact that they're actually switching or the fact that expression has changed yeah. or the fact that we're even just optimizing how they're being recruited. Yeah. It doesn't actually matter because the training foundation for producing the same result in how you recruit, optimize, express, or yeah. change muscle fiber typology is the exact same principle and foundation. Yeah, which is if you go anaerobic all the time, you're going to be bringing out those intermediate fibers, making them act more fast twitch. If you go hammer your 400s to the track or whatever, and that's going to be counterproductive for how your body processes lactate and you know fuels yourself with oxygen during the events. So you know there's some interesting things here that might actually be unfolding over very long time horizons. I've personally felt it. So I'm a very faster twitch athlete based on my history. And as I've gotten older, every single year, running gets so much easier, the more I can just put in some easy work. Um, and it's it's liberating to understand, okay, there's something else that's happening here beneath the surface that like those 55-year-olds showed just takes time and sessions. Um, and it's something that get, might get missed in like the narrow zoomed in scope of looking at Norwegian training. So I would say you think about mortality and aging a lot more than yeah. the common person, which is, I mean, I think you think deeply about the world. And I think anyone that thinks deeply thinks about mortality. But I also see this little like light bulb that goes off in your brain because you're like right alongside that aging process yeah. that is ultimately leaving, leading me to mortality. My slow twitch muscle fibers are getting <laughs> primed and I'm all here for it. And it's kind of fun to see that like that balance beam going off in your brain. Yeah, I think more mitochondria is a small price to pay for eventually having to die. That is my <laughs> official policy. Um, so the ex back to the article. The exact method of using sustainable threshold intervals becomes very complicated in practice. A pro athlete with a massive aerobic base may find that their lactate threshold and aerobic threshold are compressed. That's how a champion marathoner can go so fast for just over two hours. Thus, their threshold intervals may be lower lactate, but still really fast, like the Kenyan athlete example. A less aerobically developed athlete may be higher lactate, but relatively slow on threshold intervals relative to their 5k speed. While lactate monitoring is the only true way to apply the Norwegian approach, uh, Megan and I do not do fingerprints for the finger pricks for the athletes we coach, or ass pricks, uh, to follow <laughs> that thought. We mostly coach remotely, and I am not good enough drone pilot to make sure I don't prick something less receptive than a finger. Uh, instead, we like to focus on cues, primarily one-hour effort, maybe 10k effort, um, controlled breathing, no muscle burning, etc., particularly after an athlete develops their speed. Um, another principle from Dr. Backen is that often it's better for lactate levels to rise gradually during a workout. So when doing workouts, it may be ideal to ease into the effort. We'll often have our athletes do relaxed longer intervals with a faster finish um, on short intervals or hills, particularly for athletes that are speed limited. An example might be 8 to 10 by 3 minutes around threshold effort with 1 minute easy recovery, so just relaxed intervals, followed by 5 minutes easy, then 5, to 20, five by 20 to 30 second fast hills. All that said, a lactate test and monitoring would be best. It takes discipline and confidence to avoid grinding yourself into fine dust on workouts. It takes so much discipline. Definitely. And I'm so proud of athletes that have, that you know, that really prioritize this discipline and training. And I think for me, the term, and I've said this before on the podcast, the term that I use to like channel this energy all the time is smooth. Smooth. I, and you have to say it like that, smooth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what I really want in athletes' brains as they're doing these workouts. And it's about, it's, you know, we don't need this super sexy, Strava file. In fact, that's like generating super sexy Strava files all the time is not going to be productive yeah. in the long term, like, you know, 
trajectory of training. And it's about channeling smooth and consistent again and again with some intermittent sexy yeah, Strava files. Definitely. Totally fine. Yeah. Let's put this into exact practice for an athlete just to give them an understanding. Okay. Imagine your training plan is five by six minutes. If you go out there and do those five by six minutes, let's say at 10K effort at the low end or at the faster end or threshold effort on the um, high, the like easier end, you're going to adapt to that workout. It'll make you more aerobically efficient. Yeah, it might be a little bit slow. It might not be as successful as trial file, but you'll be able to keep the training going. If instead you do five by six minutes and it ends up being a VO2 max workout, so essentially you're pushing those six minutes as hard as you possibly can on each session, which is the default that most athletes take to workouts, you are going to get fucked on a biomarker level over time. Mm -hmm. You are not actually going to get faster. And that's the crux of Norwegian training is keep those controlled um, because that's where you see major growth. Um, In fact, there's a 2016 study in physiological reports that looked at a German high altitude training camp. Um, And what they did is they adjusted for biomarkers where if, if... all these biomarkers they measured, if any of them showed perturbations beyond like some threshold, they reduced training. And those athletes were able to get faster. The complicated thing is in practice, we don't have constant biomarker measuring. So that five by six minutes, really hard VO2 max effort workout you're doing, it's probably fucking your body up on a cellular level. You just don't see it but it comes home to roost over time. I love that particular study because I think it also highlights the importance of daily communication, either with a coach or with yourself, checking in on how you feel yeah. and being flexible to adjust over time, whether that's based off of HRV, resting heart rate, mixing in subjective measurements in there over time and looking for, you know, sometimes I think it's really hard when things are bouncing around. It's really, really hard to, you know, understand the trajectory, but looking for three-day, you know, blocks in there of significant patterns. Love it so much. Okay, let's get back to the article. Principle two. Higher intensity work is used for specific adaptations. The focus on very controlled threshold training brings up the conundrum. How do slower intervals prepare an athlete to go really freaking fast? How can a 1500 meter Olympic champion do so much interval work that is substantially slower than race pace? The answer gets back to how the body actually generates and uses energy during high intensity events. The same lactate pyruvic processes are key, just at higher lactate levels. So optimizing those processes should improve all performance. But that still leaves the problem of developing mechanical adaptations to actually put out that power when it counts, plus the specific adaptations to sustain the power. We don't care about the checks that the heart, lungs, and cells can write if the leg muscles and neuromuscular system can't cash them. The Norwegian model, outlined by Dr. Backen, still includes top-end output work, primarily involving fast strides and short hills, which are similar to Lydiard models. A sample week in the article had two threshold days with two workouts on each day, which would be the subject of the next point, and one hill day involving 20 by 220 meter harder hills at 8 millimoles mm. lactate, and a speed day with shorter sprints and strides. Races likely play a big role in specific adaptations as well. It doesn't take a massive amount of high-intensity intervals to develop speed and power. As Dr. Backen says in the article, the mechanical speed you are running will always, at one point or the other, be majorly limited by the aerobic abilities. In other words, what feels like a speed limitation is often an aerobic limitation. You crushed that reading, first of all, because that writing wasn't always great, so thank you. Um, But I think that last sentence is the key thing for athletes to really internalize here. What feels like a speed limitation is often an aerobic one, particularly on longer intervals or in races. You feel like your legs aren't turning over, but it's not actually your speed. It's your ability to do the aerobic system. So what Megan was mentioning there is the lactate slash pyruvate shuttle is incredibly important even when you're at extremely high levels of lactate. So even when you're going way at VO2 max, the same things that make you efficient at threshold running are what's going on on the cellular level. 
But where do we see differences? It's because, you know, actual performance doesn't happen at the cellular level. Mm -hmm. It happens at the systems level. So how the muscles actually use that cellular context to put out power. And that's where this point comes in. They're not just doing controlled aerobic work. They're also doing some fast as fuck work. Okay, 20 by 220 meter hills. When you break that down, I don't know. There's something in my brain that as an athlete, I get really excited about that. But anyone who has done a 30 second hill stride before knows that that feels like in like a long, long time. And 220 meters up a hill is actually, that's a beefy workout. And that underscores the idea that they're really working their power at the VO2 max as what they're layering in with their aerobic growth. And you can't neglect that. Otherwise, the ceiling starts to crumble and everything else starts to get, you know, get, get slower and less economical and less efficient. Yeah. And I think that's especially important for athletes that might not be at the elite talent level because these athletes are so fast naturally that they don't really need to do this much. But for a normal person, uh, for an aging athlete in particular, when power starts to drop, if you let your power drop, it doesn't matter how good your aerobic system is. You become like one of the pro cyclists who could go run and be so slow um, because even though their aerobic systems are the best in the world, their actual ability to put out power as a runner is not. And so you need to be heavily aware of that, that a lot of these athletes resetting, yeah, they're in their 20s, they're guys, they're probably fast as fuck naturally. Um, most of us need to constantly be reinforcing our speed in one way or another, just not with maybe the traditional, hey, I'm going to go out and run one mile or 800 meter repeats as hard as I can because we're still dealing with the same cellular processes, the same lack concerns that the pros are the like these norwegians um we just might have a few more limitations than they do and i think it's a great point of avoiding erring on the side of overdoing it as well because then you start to risk exactly what we're talking about with the muscle fiber typology where you're just activating your fast twitch muscle fibers and so it's doing this in moderation but it's also really focusing on this especially for athletes that are you know just developing or just starting out i mean killian could probably do a 20 by 220 meter hill workout and nail it every single time without having done one at all in the training cycle and so it really gets back to the idea that like natural talent is probably natural talent in this area yeah and it becomes an outsized you know metric and an outsized thing to focus on for beginner athletes yeah i remember when um killian broke his leg or something and he posted online a video of him crutching up a hill fast like doing a sprint up oh, a he hill. was going so fast he was going faster than my hill stride while crutching <laughs> after his leg break so clearly there's a difference there um and this is how we really square this circle um, where we're square a circle. Is that a term? It's a term that like venture capitalists and lawyers love to use. Oh, interesting. I just told on myself that I'm a total douchebag. But the idea being, okay, even though we do this, we still include way more speed work in terms of fast strides and some short intervals than you might see in a Norwegian model. The answer is because this only applies to the freaks. (laughs) And I coach some freaks, a guy like Matt Daniels, who's one of the very best in the world. Oh, he's a freak. He's a freak. He mostly just does Norwegian-style training with very little speed development because he could go out and do the Killian crutch intervals. Um, But that's so few athletes, and that's why it becomes important. Okay, read this in context. Even though you're doing this, often we'll tack on fast intervals after their threshold workout. So they'll do, if someone does five by six, they might end it with the 30 second strides we talked about. Um, or we might do 15 by one minute fast, one minute easy for an athlete to continue developing their power and neuromuscular output. Another way that I love structuring that too is something like eight by two minutes where the first 90 seconds, very controlled. And yeah. the final 30 seconds, you're working into a little bit more of this power stimulus. And so all different, I mean, I think these workouts are fun too. There's yeah. many different fun ways to structure this. Okay, let's get back to the article. Takeaway, you don't need to run fast all of the time to run fast when it counts. However, many professional athletes are naturally fast or have genetics that want to go fast with a small amount of reinforcement. That's my big issue with MAF training, for example, where athletes are capped at a certain low intensity and almost all running. I think most of the people that have 
excelled with that type of approach are genetically gifted and have the time and physiology to handle high volume so that focusing almost solely on the aerobic system still leads to very fast paces. For all athletes, it's likely key to keep up close to max output with strides and short hills, just like the Norwegians. My big question about applying the Norwegian model to non-outlier athletes is whether it can be used to get fast if that skill has not already been developed or as an athlete ages. Many athletes probably need to develop their velocity at VO2 max as well, which is a higher intensity level than threshold, at least initially in their athletic trajectory to make the threshold training correspond with faster paces. I predict that a beginner runner doing super slow thresholds relative to their possible genetic potential will not have fantastic outcomes unless they can handle a massive quantity of work. But if that same athlete first develops their speed, an increased focus on threshold training may have optimal outcomes later. The same goes for an aging or volume limited athlete that may not be getting adequate adaptation stress. Okay, so that is where things get really weird in training theory in general. Let's go back to MAF. So you probably heard about MAF. That's a heart rate cap training, 180 minus your age. And then you go run that pace forever. Um, if you've tried that out there, chances are you've gotten slow as fuck. Actually, I love coaching athletes that have tried that and then yeah. are coming into the swap like system because I'm like, just wait four weeks. Yeah. Things will feel really good. It's kind of like my, there's like all this opportunity for potential. Yeah. So it works really well until your power at VO2 max, whatever neuromuscular biomechanical variable you want to use doesn't get reinforced and then you just get slow. And so the athletes that succeed with MAF, like Mark Allen in the past, are super superstars. They're just super fast. Oh, he's they, a genetic freak. And they developed their speed before. Um, so for every athlete, like true base has to come on a layer of speed. So you have to actually be able to run fast for aerobic base development to not just lead to you being an aerobic monster that runs slow all the time. Um, it doesn't have the capability to run fast. So it gets back to like, we're not just at the cellular level. Like we're not just in the magic school bus looking at mitochondria <laughs> as much as that would be like a sex dream for me. <laughs> we're, we're zoomed out. We're looking at an athlete in a holistic sense, especially as an athlete ages. An aging athlete, controlled aerobic system development matters, but power, power, power. Um, you need to fight that inertia going in the opposite direction. I'm so glad that you emphasize this point in the article. It also makes me think that Killian could crutch MAF training and still show up to races yeah. and like win zeros and all of that. I think you're probably right, actually. And it, it's it's super complicated. And it's actually, as a as a coach, sometimes I'll, I'll take an athlete and they'll have great results. And I'll kind of want to say, hey guys, you know what? I'll take credit for that last one, like the the other athlete you saw. But this athlete, like, let's just let's just let this one pass. Don't give me credit anywhere. You don't have to say they're a swap athlete. Like, uh, basically, my only role there is just give them positive reinforcement and tell them you're good. Just don't go too hard. Well, talent is so beautiful sometimes, yeah. and often sometimes it's like tragically unfair too. Yeah, it's so true. You know, it's like I mean, I feel like I definitely see both edges of this the sword as as a coach. Um, you know, sometimes people can just do whatever and be awesome. As as I like to say, talent is a motherfucker um, and it complicates everything here. Okay, back to the article. Principle three, block workout days are a key part of optimizing the response to lactate controlled training. Here's the big sexy point, double threshold workout days. I started using these for advanced athletes a few years ago, sometimes preceding exciting national and international performances. And based on our team data from those interventions, it can really work for trail and ultra runners. But again, many of those athletes are so talented that it's possible that a number of different interventions would have also led to breakthroughs. Dr. Backen describes a fascinating experiment to see how to get the best response from threshold training. Intervention 1 involves 7 to 10 days with controlled threshold sessions. Intervention 2 involved massive amounts of threshold work in a single session, something like 80 plus minutes. 
um, which if you're operating at one hour effort and doing 80 plus minutes. That's inter- a lot. It's a lot. It's very hard. Um, intervention three involved blocking the threshold work into a two-a-day approach. For him, intervention three went in a landslide. So this is doing a uh, threshold workout in the morning, a threshold work in the evening, maybe what thre- uh, Norwegians are most famous for. These twice-a-week double threshold days are an X factor for the Norwegian model. Similar in some ways to Canova's block workouts, these threshold days involve AM and PM workouts with threshold intervals. The idea is that this approach involves the most time at the threshold sweet spot without accumulating excessive muscular fatigue that makes the sweet spot slower paces and just able to be able to finish workouts or increasing the injury risk. There may be other adaptation benefits as well, possibly related to the complex interaction of physiology, genetics, and hormone pulses during the day. Okay, as you put this together, it sounds to me, if I, I think if I were someone listening to this, it yeah. sounds a little bit daunting. Definitely. It's these double threshold workout days. How can I even achieve this within my own training? And I think before we break it down, we have done so in a lot of creative ways for athletes yeah. that don't always even involve running. Yeah. Um, so oftentimes, you know, double threshold days are about stacking that, you know, that time at these smooth, controlled focus focus intervals on the same day to achieve that, like, you know, that larger stimulus. But we've also done that with, you know, hill workouts on the treadmill. We've done that with bike workouts. We've done that with elliptical workouts, you know, as the second workout of the day. And so there's lots of ways to get creative where you're not just going out there and hammering, you know, four by five minute, you know, controlled efforts in the morning and in the afternoon. Yeah. And that gets back to like, this isn't, we're not worried here about the systems level, the whole muscle, right? We're thinking about the aerobic level. We're, now we're zooming back into the cellular, uh, you know, magic school bus sex, sex dungeon. <laughs> and at that level, it doesn't really matter what you're doing, what activity it is. So you could do one of these controlled workouts in the morning. And then our favorite is a treadmill where you run uphill on the treadmill. Most athletes, if they run uphill on the treadmill at 15%, their heart rate will get into zone two and a zone three model, into zone three and a five zone model, just naturally. And that will be a very semi-structured, non-daunting version of this. You also do it on the elliptical. You could do it on the bike. Um, there's a lot of different ways to get at similar processes. Essentially, we talk about stacking stress. On a day, you have a threshold workout. In the evening, when you double, once you've advanced and you're used to doing doubles, you can make those a little bit more moderate. Just be careful about ever applying it with running. It's something that we only use in very small doses and have seen amazing results with, but also calamities that don't get talked about as much with athletes that you know overshoot the efforts, go too hard, and just get burnt. And again, this is for athletes that are not stress limited. So an athlete working seven to seven job, I would never use this for. I mean, you're just at that point, you're scratching at marginal gains at the cost of like increased cortisol levels and massive biomarker perturbations that are just not worth it for me. But you, you talked about that. You do have a few athletes that are doing these very specific focused workouts that are more akin to, you know, what you're, what we're seeing here with back in. How would you describe what would be like an example workout of this kind of like classic double threshold sort of workout that's not on a treadmill? or cross-training? Amazing question. So uh, this gets a little complicated. um, And I think let's take a step back and look at Killian here. I asked Killian when we did a podcast interview with him if he does these. And he said yes, but he only does them in build phases. So you don't want to do this when you're building a base at the very beginning of the season or when you're racing and you're Mm -hmm. getting a lot of stress. This is like when you're building up in the thick of training. Um, And for those athletes, the way I like to structure it is either longer intervals in tempo or tempo in the morning. So let's say a 20 minute threshold tempo followed by, you know, strides like five by one minute, five by 30 seconds, something like that in the morning. And then in the evening, one minute style intervals. So very controlled, shorter. So there's less physiological necessity to really push. So something like 10 to 15 by one minute, working up a little more, um, you know, modeled after some of the Norwegian approaches you'll see. But the big idea here is these, even though they sound super hard, they shouldn't be too hard. 
that's to be contrasted with, is it okay if I get into Canova block workouts? Yes. Oh, these are, these are sexy. Yeah. It's so sexy that it hurts a little bit. And this is where it starts. This to is, get... this is extra daunting. I don't know if yeah. it's sexy or daunting. Uh, both. I think sex is a little daunting if you think about it, you know, that's there's true. Like, it's kind of like, um, in the, when they launched the missile from the X-Wing in, um, Star Wars into the exhaust port, that's kind of like sex. I would be nervous about <laughs> launching the missile into the exhaust port. Like I'm Luke Skywalker, just like I would be nervous about various things in sex. That, oh my gosh. That's wild. Is that good? <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So Canova's block workouts are fascinating. Our, my favorite training book ever is Marathon Training, A Scientific Approach. It's a great summary of these Canova principles. Um, I don't even think the book's ever in print anymore. Don't you have a, you have kind of this like underground version of it. Yeah. And we've shared it with tons of people over time. Um, and we got it from a Lithuanian coach that came to visit us. Very cool. They were visiting all the best coaches in the United States. And it was like, Jerry Schumacher, uh, Ben Rosario, and us. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> Not sure, but thank you. Um, and so on these block workouts, they're done much more sparingly in key sessions in training, key blocks. And they absolutely fucking destroy athletes where they're huge sessions with tons of work around marathon pace or faster. Um, and my favorite piece of running writing ever, I'm really going to say that ever, is Nate Jenkins's blog post on his attempt. Um, it was like the book Once a Runner in Real Life. And so I'm going to break this down because throughout, he looked at his mental state and everything else. And it it showed me when I was first getting into running, wow, the limits are so far beyond what I could even imagine now because this is back when five miles to me was a longer run. I think this was a rare example where my cortisol elevated just reading something. Yeah. Just reading about his training elevated my cortisol. Yeah. So this is the basic breakdown of what he did. The morning session was a 10K um, that was fast. And then a 10K that was faster. So he did two by 10K in the morning. Holy shit. The PM session was a 10K that was fast, followed by 10 by one kilometer that was insanely fast. Okay, why? Who knows, right? That's That's the complicated thing. Because as we say, oh, this is probably the aerobic system, I think that applies to the Norwegians that are doing a bunch of these, right? That are doing maybe two a week sometimes. When we talk about Canova that's doing one of them periodically throughout training cycles, maybe like four throughout a big marathon block, it becomes, okay, I bet this is something weird with physiology, that you're essentially hacking some super compensation process with um, you know, either hormones or a really weird explanation I've seen that you actually took out of this article because you're like, David, this sounds like witchcraft and voodoo, um, was um, adult stem cell expression. Yeah, that is, does sound a little bit like witchcraft and voodoo. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad you took it out and you actually listened to my edit, which is great. I think it's important though to follow up. So Nate Jenkins, he went on, he had he ran a really fast marathon. Remind me, what was his marathon? I think it was like 214, but the significant part there is he didn't show that talent early in his career. It like, was like far beyond. This is like, yeah. you know, some American coming in and running 204 and you being like, what? Um, it was remarkable. I mean, to me, it was the ultimate workman-like inspiration because I looked at this guy who didn't seem to me like a super talent. Obviously he has some talent because he wouldn't be able to do this otherwise, but running this like at the time, world-class fast time before super shoes. And I was like, holy shit. Wow. That's amazing. And I think he fully optimized that, as you mentioned, on, you know, a talent trajectory. It, it was far outside of the talent trajectory that we were expecting from him. And I think he would acknowledge that himself. Definitely. And it's so cool because he was grasping at all these parts of human physiology. That being said, I yeah. think we really have to have caveat the point that he is not racing today. He has had like severe overtraining symptoms. He's actually described something that we've seen um, in some athletes. Fortunately, we've never coached an athlete into this, but we've seen some athletes that have come to us, yeah. um, you know, asking questions about it is kind of this lack of coordination in either one leg or two legs and yeah. he has it in one leg and I think that's the impact of overtraining so 
I don't tout this workout, but it is yeah. it is interesting and curious to see someone like grasping the sh- like you know really grasping at the limits of human physiology. It's so cool. Okay, back to the article. The exact methods for double threshold days have a lot of variance based on the sources I have looked at over the years. In some approaches, one of the sessions is harder, either at higher lactate levels or more volume. In others, it's distributed evenly. Usually, athletes do intervals rather than tempos to control lactate accumulation and avoid excessive. Muscular fatigue, though I often use tempos for athletes who are volume or time limited. One example from Backen's article involved a six minute intervals in the morning at slightly lower lactate with one minute recoveries, and then slightly more intense one minute intervals with 30 second recoveries in the PMs. A similar example from the Ingebrigtsens was five by six minutes um, in the AM, followed by 25 by 400 with 30 seconds recovery in the PM. Remember, this workout style involves very controlled intervals for these athletes. While that looks daunting, threshold work should feel pretty comfortable and pretty controlled. I think it's helpful, actually. It's I think it's helpful to give context to what exact workouts that we're talking about here. Yeah. And the fact that, like, yes, it sounds mega daunting. I mean, I think, you know, you write that on an athlete's training plan. But once you boil it down to that smooth nature, yeah. it really actually helps with controlling it. And it is not daunting. Yeah, and, you know... Again, it gets back to maybe this does have some sort of weird response in physiology that doing them periodically would also work. Like doing these controlled sessions once every three or four weeks. You know, it's something I like to experiment with in the off season when an athlete's building up but not racing. Um, my, maybe one of the coolest examples is Nils Vanderpool, a um, the cross country ski gold medalist who used these sessions on the bike to prepare himself for the gold medal in cross country ski. How wild is that? It's amazing. I just think that this is such a... Um, you know, frontier in training theory, but does it work for women at all? Actually, that's just where I was about to go. I like that you, you know, highlighted the idea that you use this periodically. I think for women, the the sex differences in terms of biomarkers and in yeah. terms of hormones are really challenging for this type of training. Like I think, you know, this would take a woman who is talented at adaptation and recovery Definitely. and has a talented genetic talent um for a hormonal and optimized hormonal biomarker panel but i could see using this periodically in female athletes so you know maybe working in a double threshold session on a treadmill you know yeah. once every four weeks or once every three weeks and seeing how that athlete responds and so i think a lot of nuances and sex differences here yeah too. and if you want to experiment with it the sessions don't have to be this bulky at first either they can be smaller sessions in the am and pm see how your body responds over time and then go from there um i think that the, the fun part of training theory is starting to experiment with your N equals one. Mm-hmm. Ideally with a coach, you got to just be really honest with yourself 100% of the time because if you do this shit and you push hard, bad things await. Like, right, this is not going to end well. And so it's one of those like, be careful because that stove is set at 600 degrees and you don't want to stick your head inside it. Oh yeah. Always be willing to back off the stove to 250 degrees Yeah, yeah, yeah. before sticking your head inside of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, back to the article. Takeaway. Double workouts are a cool training wrinkle that have outsized benefits for an athlete that properly controls their efforts. For trail athletes, I usually keep the overall volume a bit lower, aiming for 15 to 30 minutes of threshold work in the AM and PM, spread much more sporadically throughout the training cycle, and often more resembling intense Canova blocks rather than less intense Norwegian clusters. That being said, it's a place where my own training philosophy is evolving for professional athletes in particular, and I bet my approach will will look a bit different in a few years after Megan and I gather more data for trail and ultra athletes. The treadmill is a great option to give it a try. Uphill treadmill doubles allow athletes to hit threshold in a controlled manner with limited injury risk. Plus, Dr. Backen is a big fan of the treadmill for standardization and effort control. 
An athlete should probably not try double workouts until they do consistent, easy doubles in a healthy and sustainable way. It's also likely that an athlete needs to be doing relatively high training volume for this type of approach to not cause injury or risk over stress. And be extra careful with potential endocrine impacts. There's a chance that this type of training intervention is less effective or even counterproductive for some female athletes. Yeah, and that gets back to what are we actually seeing here? Maybe we're just seeing that, hey, you do a ton of workouts and eventually if you're talented, you're going to get fast. Maybe we're not seeing anything to do with Norwegians. We're just seeing a cluster of talented super freaks that then ascribe their success to a specific approach. Um, So maybe it doesn't have to do with that, but I do think we're starting to see some standardization across everything we talk about of certain elements of training theory. Easy running is really important. Controlled workouts matter. Speed development at the top end matters, but don't hammer yourself with hard workouts. And one of the ways that athletes accumulate training volume is via doubles. Well, I was going to say, I think it actually might even be less about the workout stimulus and yeah. more about the doubles themselves. True. So, I mean, we t- you, you mentioned in here that maybe this isn't great for an athlete that's like just building into volume, but I would say that the easy doubles are a great bridge for that. Yeah. We've talked about on prior episodes how there's been all the, these research studies out there looking at how doubles improve adaptation biomarkers, protein expression. They may even improve like glycogen replacement. Punishment. Yeah. And so perhaps that's actually the mediator that we're seeing. It's the impact of doubles. Yeah. It's not necessarily even the impact of the double workouts. It's just the, the pure volume. Yeah. And it really points out how wild training is and how wild applied physiology is because you mentioned something there, protein expression that we haven't touched on yet. You know, we're focusing on the aerobic system and general generalities about that and the musculoskeletal system and generalities about that. But underlying all of this are really weakly understood processes like protein expression. Like how does this actually change how your genetics act over time? We could be seeing essentially a system that harnesses whatever the baseline genetic code is of an athlete Mm -hmm. and just points it in the direction of endurance in ways that lead to nonlinear adaptations. So like there are mice studies that find that doubles, for example, and double workouts that you're giving these cute little mice um, involve increased expression of one protein that's highly associated with adaptation. So maybe the point of doubles isn't the aerobic system at all. It's just to let you adapt to other shit. And we don't know why. So we might never know why. I hope we do, but um, it's a place where you have to get a little comfortable with uncertainty, both as an athlete and as a coach. It'd be really fun to coach mice. Oh, I was actually, yeah. for a PhD, I was looking at a few different programs, and one of them was working in animal models of mice, and I really wanted to coach the mice. Let's create some champions. <laughs> that would be so great. Yeah, just tell the mice, believe you've got this. The cheese is yours. Just keep going on that wheel. Okay, back to the summary. And this is the summary of the article um, to conclude. Dr. Backen's article has so many other brilliant tidbits, so definitely give it a full read. As with all training theory, there is no exactly right answer for everyone, but the Norwegian model's principles are likely relevant to all endurance athletes. Keep easy days easy, develop speed, but don't excessively train anaerobic processes that can detract from aerobic development. Controlled intervals are often more effective for aerobic development, and you shouldn't be racing workouts. And as for double workouts, lactate measurements, and massive weekly training volumes, well, your experiences may vary, <laughs> but it's exciting as hell to explore the next frontiers in training theory. Well, thank you uh, for reading that. And yeah, it's just so interesting to think about these athletes coming in and dominating the world. And I think in some ways, it's incredibly exciting for all of us because we're starting to see a general feel for what training theory looks like. Um, you know, we're talking about these Nor- Norwegians. This article was written last year. Um, but then on the podcast, we interviewed Killian, who overlapped with this. We interviewed Courtney, who overlapped with this. I wrote articles on Kip Choge's training philosophy overlaps with this. So even though things like double workouts get a little bit too far into the weeds and lactate measurements and things like that, I don't think you need to worry about that. I think we are starting to see hey, if you're truly looking to optimize your performance, we kind of know the way. 
um, at least to get 95% of the way there. And then all this other stuff is just looking at the 5%. And so that 5% matters, but keep focusing on the 95%. And when it comes to that 95%, I think we're on solid footing now. I am so excited. And I feel like it goes beyond the Norwegian model because clearly we're seeing all these athletes doing it. And we're, we're calling it Norwegian. When, yeah. You know, Courtney is doing it and Killian's doing it and all these athletes. But it's fun to see this unified training theory come together in – something that is so sustainable for athletes. I think for me as a coach, sometimes it's really frustrating to log into Strava and see someone doing training. I mean, yes, this training is daunting, but it's also sustainable too. And it's allowing the athlete to optimize their biomarkers and health at the same time, because that's what leads to long-term performance. And I think I'm excited about, you know, a system that is about optimizing gains today, but also three years down the road from now. And I'm pretty confident in this approach, as long as you don't overcook things. And as long as you're, you know, diligent and responsive to your body yeah. that you're also prioritizing longevity too. Yeah. And so before we finish, let's just zoom out and like give it grounding for an athlete out there who isn't a pro, right? Who might not even be working with a coach and give them an understanding of what we consider Norwegian principles. Um, so first thing, aerobic volume, 80 plus percent of the time, um, where exactly that lies can vary, but the framework we like is half of that aerobic volume being zone one. So we're talking like purely easy. On a five zone model. Uh, yes, on a five zone model, exactly. Um, so we're talking purely, purely easy. No lactate generation at all. And then maybe half of that easy, you can even work up to steady or be push a little bit more on hills or whatever. Um, so maybe you're generating a little bit of lactate, but it's still easy. So that's 80% of your training right there. And maybe the part of the Norwegian training we didn't talk about is that they're doing a lot of very, very easy running. And right alongside that though, so um, you know, really important to make sure you're laying in that VO2 power stimulus as yes. well that you're keeping that ceiling high, that you're thinking about running economy and running development um, because that's that's feeding into the aerobic work. So don't forget, you know, those shorter intensity days. Don't forget your strides. Don't yeah. neglect that fun neuromuscular output because it really just feeds into the overall running economy of an athlete. Yeah, maybe a general principle is to get close to max up, max output two times a week at least. I love that, yeah. You know, so that can be as simple as four by 30 second hill strides. It can be as complex as these huge hill workouts that the Norwegians are talking about. But as long as you get comfortable touching that, um, I think you'll set up a positive feedback cycle with everything else we're talking about. And then the final big point is an emphasis on critical velocity, which might you can assume is like 10K effort for advanced athletes or lactate threshold for professional athletes. But for most of us, don't worry about those numbers. Just think, okay, I could race this workout. What's the fastest I could go in these three-minute intervals? And instead of going that, dial it back two notches. Mm-hmm. Make it sustainable, build it up over time, maybe throw in strides at the end and then build that over multiple cycles, and you might see great progress that you don't predict. And then maybe before hard events, you do some really hard workouts. Like it's still important to go really hard sometimes, but that can be confined to moments when you need to spur the final adaptations rather than initial adaptations. I think the final, final big point too yeah. is to feel the work that you're doing. Oh, yeah. So, so important. I mean, I think everything about the system falls out if you're not you know, providing yourself with the, the fuel that you need for long-term performance. So just like the Norwegians, the frozen pizza mentality <laughs> is where it's at. That is perhaps, maybe it's not even doubles. Maybe yeah. it's not the smooth, focused efforts. Maybe it's the frozen pizza. <laughs> maybe it is. In fact, I saw an interview with Christian Blumenfeld before Kona. And they asked, what is your secret? And he's like, you know what? We've just gotten comfortable eating more than our opponents. 
Um, and that, you know, he went through this whole thing about how he feels about the scale and how he's had to change his relationship with it because it's a little bigger than some of his, his competitors, but there's a reason he can do this work. And he has increased the size of his stress bucket at the dinner table. Um, and you know, if you're looking to do this work, you need to make sure you fucking step up when it comes to snacks, because, um, that's the only way to make sure your body doesn't break down and you're able to adapt like those adorable little mice. And I think I'm stealing the sentence from one of the articles that you wrote. You probably said that we wrote <laughs> Um, is that champions are made at the dinner table. Yeah. And I think, you know, to be able to put in this hard and sexy training, you need the you need the dinner table approach. That was a really fun discussion. That was amazing. Okay, so but before we end, make sure you subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash swap SWAP. So much fun going down there. Um, it's such a joy. Make sure, most of all, you follow, click follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It helps us so much. Uh, subscribe to it as well. That's what gets it to other people. Give it five stars, um, and I think we'll just keep these sexy sciences coming if you get, go there and give it a follow. We're just giving you a little bit incentive right now. Seriously, I mean, it means a ton to us when you do that. And leave a review. Tell us what you think. That would be as long as it's five stars. If, if you give less, you can just email us. Yeah, you can. You can. Yeah, send you it can to leave our, that off public settings. Send it to our Gmail. Yeah, uh, yeah. Also, I'm pretty sure if Norwegians took Athletic Greens, they would go to the next level. So <laughs> consider Athletic Greens. We've had we have the stories that we've had of athletes that are like, I feel energized immediately yeah. after taking Athletic Greens. It's pretty bonkers. Yeah. Well, we have to ask the Nor. We we'll have to. Yeah, I'm sure that the, maybe they're taking athletic greens. Maybe that is their ultimate secret. It's which the is, pesto on their pizza. It's, yeah. the, it's the green stuff. <laughs> exactly. So athleticgreens.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. Uh, it is a great thing that we truly swear by for ourselves and others. Um, but most of all, we swear by the idea that we fucking love you all. Uh, we appreciate you so much, and it's so inspiring to know you're out there grinding and going for it and wherever your goals lie. Seriously, you all are the best. Enjoy those double sessions, however they may lie, even if it's a double at the dinner table. Woohoo! Bye!